0: very glad to be with you. Thank you for participating in that with us. You know, we don't believe church is a performance. This isn't a routine that we prepare to present to you every week. Like, we are a real church family. And, you know, when it comes to dedications, this is something that involves all of us as a community, not just those with kids. I, I love that Emily just acknowledged, you know, you see this, you may think, oh, everybody in this community has kids. And I want to remind you that's not the case. There was a period of time in our community group, our personal community group, where we began having kids, and over half of our group were struggling with infertility. Uh, So, if that's you, I know that this can mean something different to you, but you've got to know you're just as much a part of this community as anyone else. Whether you're married, you have kids, you don't have kids, you're single, you're retired, we all have a role to play in supporting our brothers and sisters, and certainly in raising up this next generation. So thank you uh, for caring about that alongside us. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 26 this morning, if you want to open up there this morning with me. Uh, You know, I want you to know if you're a visitor, uh, this is a significant message. There's some things to work through that I'm going to be talking about that I was already having some after-sermon discussions with others about uh, from first service. And and you've got to understand that You know, I don't look at the calendar and say, oh, it's Child Dedication Sunday. I better bring out my sermon, you know, three life hacks to upgrade your experience with God or something like that. You know, that's just not who we are as a branches community. Our our name is the name that was given to us in the scriptures. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you're rooted in me, you're going to bear much fruit, you know, as, as branches connected to a vine. But if you're not connected to me, you're just branches sitting there without a vine, apart from me, you can do nothing. So it's just our discipline. As a church, to go to God's word, to go to the words of Jesus, the example of Jesus, week in and week out, believing that whether it's Child Education Sunday or some other, or people are visiting or whatnot, God is going to bear fruit in our time together. We've been in the book of Matthew for a year and a half. We just happen to be in Matthew chapter 26 this week. So again, open up there with me if you will. You can raise your hand if you need a Bible. And last week, we looked at Jesus in one of the most intimate scenes depicting his humanity in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he looked toward drinking the cup of God's wrath. And though he pleaded for another way, apart from the cross, he ultimately became for us this example of spirit-empowered humanity. He accepted the will of God, that he was going to go to the cross, and he received the strength of God by God's very presence in him. Now this week, we're going to see the resolute shift in Jesus' demeanor. You know, for the last hour in the garden, he's been praying for another way apart from the cross. But now he is determined to fulfill the purpose that was set forth in the Scriptures and by the leading of his Father in heaven. We left off as his betrayer, Judas, was approaching him and the rest of the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's where we're going to pick up, all right? Verse 47 here, the verses will also be on the screens. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Let's pause there this morning. At the outset of our reading, we've got this large band that arrives in the garden where Jesus has been praying. The disciples have been sleeping. Jesus has been praying. And it's made up of temple guards and associates of the Sanhedrin, which is essentially like, you know, the Jewish equivalent of the American Supreme Court. They're going to issue the highest rulings. Um, among the Jewish people. And you've also got present in the band, maybe possibly leading the band, the servant of the high priest Caiaphas. Judas is also there, and he's at the head leading them all to the place where Jesus, again, was praying. Uh, If you recall a week ago, Jesus actually told some of his disciples to hang back as he moved forward with just his inner circle of Peter, James, and John. It's Conceivable that Judas was there walking with them until that point and then he snuck away so that he could go fetch this militia. And here they are with swords and in the literal language it just says sticks. This is like the equivalent of you know baseball bats or something like that. This is a real ragtag pitchfork and torches sort of group that is waiting for Judas to identify Jesus with a kiss. And verse 49 tells us the kiss as if it wasn't offensive enough on its own, it's also accompanied by this greeting that Judas has for Jesus. He says, greetings, rabbi. This was the common term that Judas would use for Jesus. It means teacher, whereas the rest of the disciples would refer to Jesus as Lord, as master. Here he's ready to just trade him out as someone who's optional to follow or not. Now, Jesus' response to Judas is one of ironic resignation. He says in verse 50, do what you came for, friend, friend. And at once it says they seized him by force. In response, Matthew says one of Jesus' companions takes out a sword and swings for the fences and lops off the servant of Caiaphas' ear. Okay, I mean, we know that this was not intentional on Peter's part. Peter is identified as the disciple in the Gospel of John. It's not like Peter's got his hand on his hip and he's cutting charcuterie, you know, and he just very exactingly takes off the ear. No, he was swinging like he means it, and he missed, and he slightly nicked that individual. This is right in line with the character of Peter. He's going for possibly the highest-ranking official in this whole crew. And if Jesus did not intervene, this would be quite the melee. This would be quite the off-brand bloodbath that would have finished out Jesus' earthly ministry. But intervene he did. Put your sword back in its place, he says in verse 52. And with that call to stand down, Jesus declares this principle of non aggression. For all who draw the sword, die by the sword. This is a statement worth reflecting on in a country with over 400 million guns, 393 million of which are in the hands of civilians. If you do the math, that's about 120 guns per 100 civilians. I mean, some of you are dual-wielding out here right now. And I know what you're thinking, oh, man, with the things that are going on in the world today, this topic, has Andrew gone woke? You know, is this what we're going to hear? We're going to hear the woke agenda at church now. I knew he was a millennial. He must be woke. I promise you, if you gave me an aptitude test on wokeism, I would get an F. And I'm just encouraging you right now, you know, we're talking about guns, watch your blood pressure, watch your blood pressure, because if your blood pressure's instantly high, you're not going to hear a thing, I'm going to say, for the next few moments. You're going to make a bunch of assumptions about what I did say, and I'm going to give away the end from the beginning. I'm not even making a claim on what's right or what's wrong, okay? I'm just going to give you a pastoral suggestion. Because we got to think about this for a moment, this statement of Jesus. You can pass by it, you can just justify whatever you want to think, or you can think about what Jesus is saying. Those who live by the sword, those who draw the sword, die by the sword. You know, am I missing something here in our culture today? Because there is this, this bit that's a little bit of miss in my mind, that for some reason or another, American Christianity seems very closely associated with guns, and there's a lot of this idea in American Christianity that guns are some sort of like source of security for us as a people. And I don't know anything in the Bible that would encourage you or I to love guns or swords or tools of violence or violence at all or to find our security in those tools. I don't know anything in the Bible that would encourage that. Now, you may say, well, you said, no, I love guns. I don't love guns. I respect guns. I'm trained in the use of my guns. And I say, okay, I hear you. And I respect the way that you're approaching it. But we've got to think deeply about this topic. Because when a lot of people from other countries and when a lot of people in our own country think about an American Christian, they picture someone who loves guns more than someone who loves people. That's people's perception. of. They think American Christian, they think, Man, these people, not that they love people, they love their guns. I'm not a, you know, in sales or marketing. You know, I'm just not. Some of you are. I mean, you tell me. That sounds like we're missing it with our messaging a little bit, if that's the perception that people are picking up from us as Christians. A couple weeks back, my wife told me, she said, You're rude. Just like that. You're rude you're a rude person. You've been a rude person the last few weeks. I don't like how you're coming off in front of other people, in front of me. Something's wrong with you. And you know, in that moment, what's your instinct to say, what? What are you talking about? And I know if you're visiting today, you're thinking, oh, who is this guy? I knew I didn't like him. <laughs> I don't tell the story every week. She doesn't tell me this all the time, but she did tell me this. What do I do with that? I can say, you're wrong. Or I can say, wait a minute, that's not godly. That's not the example that I want to be setting forth. That doesn't align with what I believe. So maybe it wasn't in my heart. Maybe it wasn't in my intentions. But this is the way that I'm being perceived. I got to go look in the mirror. I got to go do some soul searching. I got to figure this out. That This is the message that I'm putting across. So I say the same thing for us. Jesus said, those who draw the sword die by it. So why do people think we love swords so much? I'm just suggesting, this is the only thing I'm suggesting to you at this point in the sermon, to pray about it. Let's take a long look in the mirror. Or you can already justify your end from the beginning and say, oh, let's just go on sending mixed messages, who cares? You know, Jesus didn't need swords. He could have drawn a sword if he wanted to. You get that? You get the fact that he could have melted them with laser vision. He could have called down fire from heaven. He could have nuked these suckers. And he essentially, like, theorizes the same way I am right now. He goes, guys, don't you get it? I can call on 12 legions of angels. It would be like 5,000 soldiers in a detachment. He's saying, I don't need swords. I've got other ways I can handle this by force if I needed to. But how else would the scriptures be fulfilled? Jesus has accepted the fact that he is the only possible offering for your sin and for my sin. He's the only possible offering for sin, past, present, and future. And he knows the will of God of nonviolent self-sacrifice, the path that he's gonna walk, and he's determined to fulfill it and follow it by his own choosing, by his own volition. Nothing is happening around him that he isn't fully in control of, that he isn't fully submitting to. And he makes that apparent a couple different ways. You'll see this. He's fully in control of himself all the way up to the point of the cross. Because here he is, he's telling his disciples to stand down. You know, he's the one who's being, like, arrested. But he goes, nope, nope, put your swords away. And then he calls on a spiritual authority and says, well, I could call... Legions of angels right now. And then he takes some time to just sort of pause while he's being arrested and rebuke everybody that's arresting him. Like, what are you guys thinking? You know, am I leading a rebellion that you come to me with swords and clubs at night, all day long? I'm out in the temple courts. I'm teaching in the daylight. You know the content of my messages and yet you come to me with this sort of aggression. Who is the real criminal here? He's in full control of the scene but he's also a victim of injustice that continues as he's taken to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, for this sort of sham trial that goes on with Peter following at a distance. We know that it's a sham trial because in verse 59, the chief priests and Sanhedrin are said to be looking for these false witnesses. They don't want the truth, right? They want false witnesses so they can get to the death penalty. And in fact, this trial, which takes place at night is breaking the laws of the Sanhedrin that said that Supreme Court could only gather and issue decrees during daytime hours. But you have to understand, since Jesus came into Jerusalem, he's had a target on his back because he came in with some loaded rhetoric because he was challenging the authority of those spiritual leaders. And they did what leaders of any institution do when they're challenged. They have that knee-jerk reaction to retain their power and also the status quo. For these leaders, nothing would threaten their positions of power. So Jesus must be removed. Essentially, the outcome is already determined before the trial is started. They've just got to figure out a justification to get to what they've already determined. But they're struggling to find witness testimony. Even the false testimony that they're giving, they can see that it is false. Jesus has lived so above reproach. Ultimately, there is this you know, slim charge against him that he supposedly threatened the temple... Jesus' saying regarding the temple is recorded in the Gospel of John, and you can tell that he's actually been misheard and misinterpreted. No surprise there. But whatever the case, this claim about Jesus, the fact that it's late into the night, I think all this kind of works together to make Caiaphas sort of blow a gasket and just say, come on now! Are you the Son of God? Are you the Messiah or not? And Jesus asserts that he is, in fact, both, just as the high priest has suggested. And with that, Jesus' fate is sealed from here on out. Caiaphas has the justification that he needs to charge him with blasphemy and to send him to his death. After the crowd confirms it, they begin to all take turns hitting him and spitting on him. Culturally, this would be a way of distancing themselves from this now accused and convicted blasphemer. We don't want anything to do with him. You know, this passage is bad business. This is bad stuff that goes on right here. This is one of the ugliest pictures of human depravity, of injustice, of aggression and opposition that's both literal and physical as well as spiritual. For the perfect son of God, who's lived righteously in the daylight, right? For everyone to see, he's being treated this way. But he gives us a model. He gives us an example that we could walk in. Because guess what? As we look to the future, do you think Christianity is improving in its public opinion? You Do you think that there's a bright, rosy future for us? There's not going to be any conflict in society. There's not going to be any opposition against us, literally or spiritually, as those who claim Christ as Lord. You can take the rosiest picture of the future you want. And I just don't think that we're in for necessarily the best of times. It could be that we'll be facing our own unjust treatment as we enter into the future. But we're fortunate that we have an example in Christ that we can walk in. Well, how do we respond to that? Because Jesus was dealing with that same thing. So here, I want to give us a couple notes on facing unjust treatment. And it'll be on the screens, and you can take these down if you're a note taker. Number one, I want to assert that in the face of unjust treatment, Jesus did not show aggression. Aggression. In the face of unjust treatment, if we were to face unjust treatment, we've got to remember, Jesus did not show and demonstrate aggression. He says, put your sword back in its place to his disciples. Do you know that this was a specific teaching for the future generations of Christians that they would have to look back on when it felt like it was time to pull out the swords, He said, put your sword back in its place. I mean, how many times in the book of Acts would the followers of Jesus be facing unjust persecution? How many times would they have someone who would be executed in an unjust way? They'd experienced that literal and spiritual opposition face-to-face. And time and time again, what did they do? Did they go away and grab all their arms and grab all their swords and enact justice? Time and time again, they went away And they took up a posture of prayer. Prayer. Hundreds of years later, when Christianity worked its way all the way up to the top of Rome, all the way up to the top of culture and society, did it get there by force through the use of arms? No. In fact, I think most people would contend that things got messy in the messaging of Christianity when arms got involved. Right? When weapons got involved after that point, Jesus asked, am I leading a rebellion? Is this the way that I've been going about my movement? Swords and clubs that you come to me in that posture? He never used a sword. But let me tell you something. I've been hearing a lot of rumors from my brothers and sisters in the modern world about taking up swords and clubs. There's all these rumors that are circulating out of the deep web right into a suburban Facebook page of American Christianity near you about a coming civil war in our country that you as a Christian have to be prepared for. If you think I'm crazy, I'm not crazy. This is real. I was in line at Chipotle. Very mundane place. Everyday place. And I ran into an individual who used to be a part of our fellowship for many years. Great individual. Amazing person. Well educated, highly educated individual. And he's talking to me about where his mind's been the last couple of years. And how, you know what? It's my prerogative. I've got to start stocking up on food and ammo for the civil war that is going to be demanded of us as Christians that we've got to fight and defend our faith in the midst of. I said, What? Are you crazy? Are you crazy? I can't see any justification in the scriptures. We're buying six months' worth of vacuum-packed food. Okay, but I can see some justification for using that money and sending it to Kenya or sending it to Ecuador where we have missionaries and they're feeding people today with food they don't have today. <laughs> like, I, I can make a justification out of the Scriptures for that posture of living. I don't understand where you're getting your justification for living in that threatened and threatening and aggressive way. You know, how do we go from, like, the Bible teaches us beginning to end to love our neighbors to let's get ready to defend our property from our neighbors. I mean, that's the mindset that people are in right now. I say, have you lost your mind? What are you listening to that this is what you're preparing yourself for today? You know, somebody told me after first service, well, what if, what if, you know, you need to defend your property. Somebody's coming in and they're going to get your wife and kids. What are you going to do? Well, I'm not going to sit there and ask that ethical question and go, well, you know, let me think this through. If that scenario were to happen, right, I'm going to act on instinct. Okay, and we, and we can live out of that. that, that, you know, thing that might happen in the future, the thing that might occur to me in the slightest off chance has happened to no one I know, by the way, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen tomorrow. Let me tell you that narrative of threats and aggression and fear and anger and hate. That is going to influence how you're behaving today. Those days haven't even come. Those days did come for the early church and we have an example of how they responded and it did not involve aggression. Who's taken hold of your mind? Have you lost your mind? But let me humanize you because you're not the only one. The disciples also lost their minds. In Luke chapter 9, they're moving through Samaritan territory in their ministry, and they weren't hospitable to Jesus. So James and John, two of Jesus' closest disciples, they say, I don't like these people. They're not kind to us. They're opposing us. They're not for us. Do You want us to call down fire from heaven? We're ready. Literally. In verse 54 of Luke chapter 9, you want us to call down fire from heaven? And Jesus said, yeah, I can't stand these guys. They've been in my way the whole time. (laughs) Send them to the fire. Verse 55, he took James and John aside. He said, have you lost your mind? Are you out of your mind? What are you thinking? What do you think our mission is right now? You know, uh, aggression has no place in what we're doing. Think of Paul. Paul goes from being a persecutor of the church, a violent persecutor of the church. He thinks God is calling him to do it, overseeing the death of Stephen, right? who willingly is asking for forgiveness for his assailants, right? Just like Jesus. And then he flips. He comes to Christ, and then does he flip who he's violently persecuting? Does he go back and say, "Oh, I'm against the Jews. Let's take up arms against the people that are taking arms up against us." No, he says, "I want to reach my fellow countrymen." I want to reach them for the Lord. I want to see them redeemed. And he says the same thing to the Gentiles, the foreigners, people who are on the furthest end of the political and religious spectrum. He says, I'm going to become all things. I'm going to do everything I can in this temporary life to reach them for the kingdom of God. I've become all things to all men. But there's an understanding. There's a heart disposition in Christianity right now. I've said it before. There's so many people saying, I'm not going to become nothing for Nobody. I'm not becoming nothing for nobody because everyone's out to get us and I'm going to defend myself against them. There's no justification for that posture of aggression in our faith. There's no room for aggression in our witness. There's no room for aggression in our faith, period. There's no room for aggression in your parenting. There's no room for aggression in your marriage. There's no room for aggression in the church No room for aggression in our witnesses. No no metaphorical swords, no literal swords. And if you think there is, Jesus will happily take you aside and rebuke you. Just as he did those two disciples. Now you say, but we're being tested in a way that's different than all the rest of history, different than the book of Acts. You don't know. I mean, the way that people are coming against us, Jesus was tested And he did not retaliate in the face of unjust opposition, unjust persecution and treatment. Jesus did not retaliate. He was tested. Look, think of the restraint he had as Judas kissed him. Think of the restraint as they're drumming up false witness testimony, right? And he's got to remain silent. Think of the restraint that he has when they're slapping him and punching him and telling him to prophesy. And he knows exactly who's punching him and slapping him and every single thing about those individuals. No retaliation. Jesus isn't doing something in those scenes that he didn't, you know, teach. He didn't teach something that he wouldn't live when he said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go a mile, go with them two miles. He didn't just teach that, then he lived it later on. So he meant that we would live it when we're to be taught to obey everything that he commanded us. Is that really biblical? Is that really how we should respond to the evil in our culture? It's biblical, guys. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is so clear, guys. Aggression and retaliation are not compatible with our faith. Aggression and retaliation are not compatible with the example of Jesus. You say to me, but Andrew, you don't know what they're doing to our country. What country are you referring to? I'm a citizen of America, and I'm a citizen of heaven. This temporary nation and this eternal nation. Guess what? My citizenship in heaven, they can't do anything to mess up heaven for me. All right? They're not ruining heaven for me. And this temporary world, no matter what anyone does in this temporary world, it cannot cause me to abandon my biblical mandates to live in line with the commands of Christ and his example. Nothing can make me depart from what Christ has called me into. But Andrew, you don't know what this person has done to me. You don't know what this family member has done to me. Man, you know, this is a principle for life. That the word of God is easy to apply when it doesn't apply. Have you realized that? The word of God is so easy to apply when it doesn't apply to our circumstances. So all the time when you're not wrong, you go, I'm not retaliating to anybody. You're not being wronged. But suddenly, when you've been wronged, you can go to this passage and say, well, he didn't really mean that, and there's a way out of it, right? It's like during COVID, you know, we've got all these differences of opinion, Christians dividing over every different idea that you can have. And there's all these passages, bear up with one another, forgive each other if you have a fault. Those are really easy to apply when they don't apply. And then we finally get into a scenario where they apply, and we say, I don't really think it means that for this circumstance right now. Guys, we can make up our minds just like Caiaphas from the beginning. This is what I believe. This is how I should behave. And you can find your rationalization and justification to get wherever you want to get. But I challenge you. Where is it that aggression and retaliation is compatible with our faith? It just isn't there, period. So what do we do? What if we're facing unjust treatment in the days to come? We've got to put our confidence in God. Jesus put his confidence in God. In the days ahead, we might be marginalized. In the days ahead, we might be attacked. We might face trouble. We might face all kinds of opposition. But put your confidence in God. Jesus said something very important to the disciples that I want him to keep saying to us as disciples through all the things that we're going to face. When Peter went to lop the guy's ear off, the head off that guy, in fact, he said, Put away your sword. Don't you know? Don't you understand what I can do? Don't you know I can call on 12 legions of angels? I can finish this the way that I want to. But the scriptures have yet to be fulfilled in this particular manner. So we're submitting to this in this moment. Do you guys understand it's the same thing today? No matter what the headline is, no matter what this week brings, Are you aware that at any moment, Jesus can call on 12 legions of angels and he can direct it in whatever way he wants to direct it? He said, you're all going to see me sitting at the right hand of my Father in heaven. You know, he put his confidence in God. He knew what the outcome was going to be. So he had the power, he had the security to respond as God was calling him to respond in the moment. Do you understand Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven? That at the end of this gospel, he's going to say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So you can say, yeah, I've got that faith and trust, even though it doesn't make sense through all these events. Or you can say, you know what, I don't know what's going on in heaven. I've got to take matters into my own hands and do this my way. Now the scriptures were fulfilled as God intended. The scriptures will be fulfilled. Our victory is coming. Our victory may be deferred. It may be delayed in coming according to our perspective, but our victory is coming and that gives us the confidence and the strength to live as Jesus did in these testing times. So having said that, I know that there's a lot in this message, but I want us to process it by the Holy Spirit because look, there's some things asserted here and it wasn't me asserting them it's the word of God you can go back and you can check and you can treat it like Jesus is a rabbi and a teacher and you can say you know what I don't like that I'm going to set that aside and live this way or is he your Lord and is he your master and you're going to submit to his example that's our choice for us as branches we're going to submit to his example so I invite you in a posture prayer would you Would you pray? Would you do some soul searching with me? The same way that I did some soul searching on the other side of my wife's comments two weeks ago. I mean, you can shortcut it or you can sit there with the Lord. Lord, we're asking, would you remove aggression from our hearts? Aggression, violence, hatred, animosity. Lord, we may be faced with aggression and animosity, but Lord, this is... It's just incompatible with the gospel that we preach. You loved us when we were enemies. We're to love our enemies. So Lord, just pull that out of us. Maybe it's how we're feeling politically. Maybe it's how we're feeling in our family relationships. Maybe it's how we're feeling toward our kids. Just remove that aggression from our hearts. It's just not righteous. It doesn't lead to righteousness. Lord, that heart of retaliation that justifies, well... I can act unrighteously because someone acted unrighteously to me. Lord, we're bound by your example. We're bound by your teaching, your authority. Lord, you said there would be another way. And all the rest of the world sees the algebra this way. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You said not so with us. Not so with you. So, Lord, make it not so. Give us a different way forward. Instead of saying, oh, there's so many obstacles, and oh, all these people are against us, Lord, we surmount the obstacles of culture. How else are people going to experience your kingdom? Nobody's going to come to us. We've got to go out into the world just as they did in the early church, just as you did, Jesus. Will we face unjust treatment? Maybe, but we're going to put our confidence in you. You are Lord. You have authority. You're sovereign. What do we fear? What do we fear? We have eternity with you. The victory is sure. The scriptures will be fulfilled. Give us confidence. Give us peace. Help us to be as you were in this world. Agents, ministers of reconciliation. Not for those who are already in your kingdom. For those who are far from your kingdom, Lord. That's your way. Jesus, you taught it. You lived it. Your followers taught it and lived it. Lord, would we teach it? Will we live it by your Holy Spirit? Empower us to do what we wouldn't do in our own humanity, and our own strength.